You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. First Peter is where we are, so you need to make sure you have a Bible open. Um, if you need one, you can feel free to grab one of those. Underneath uh, maybe every three or four seats is an ESV version. And so that will uh, get you the version that we use here. And if you need a good Bible, feel free to take that home with you. First Peter chapter 3. It's going to take us just a couple of seconds to get there. The last, really the last two months of sermons have all kind of been in lead up to today. Um, I feel like this is kind of the climatic point of the last um, probably two months worth of what we have been preaching through here. And so it's going to take just a second to set this up. And so I want to start by, by saying this, that the God that the missionary or the, the God that we serve, the God that we worship, the God that we um, come in here and sing to, that, that God is a sending God. That, that God is a missionary God. Now think about this even in the Trinity. The Trinity shows us, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that even in the makeup of God, there is missional impulses. That mission is just part of the makeup of God. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father sends God the Son on a mission of reconciliation. Um, Ephesians 1.10, to unite all things to him, to God the Father. And so, so God the Father sends God the Son on this rescue mission. So he sends him to earth. He lives a perfect life in place of your imperfect life. He dies an undeserved death in place of your deserved death. And he raises from the dead to show God's power over Satan, sin, and death so that you can have the hope of eternal life with God, right? So it's this, it's this mission that God has sent. It's this missionary impulse that God the Father has sent his Son um, to accomplish, and then you've got um, the son after the resurrection. He ascends to the father and then the father and son send the spirit. So, the, the, so think about it in terms of the father appointing kind of salvation and the mission. Then, then you've got the son accomplishing that mission. And then the father and son send the spirit to apply all that has been accomplished in the work of Jesus. So even in the Trinity, you've got this this missional impulse that you see so clearly. And if you just now take a step back from even that, and you just start reading the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you're going to see pop off the pages of scripture, this missional impulse. You're going to see this God who takes the initiative, who is sending, who is missional, who is going after, who is pursuing. Okay. Now that spirit that has been sent, think about what that spirit does. It breaks down hard hearts, it speaks life in and breathes life into dead hearts. It convicts and eventually it saves. And now when, when that God saves, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, when that God saves, that missional God, he, here's what you need to know about what happens in that moment. When God saves, just like this missional impulse in him, he plants that missional impulse in these saved people and he sends them. Okay, so, so when God saves a person, he also sends that person. And, and so um, think about it in terms of second, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. You've got the, the first piece of this, God saving. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Because that's God saving. That's Father, Son, Spirit saving. But then you've also got the sending. Why, why does he do all that? So that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see that? The same God who saves is the same God who sins. So here's the implication of this for us as a church. The church is not just a saved people. Do you know that? The church is not just a saved people. The church is a saved people who are sent by God to accomplish mission. So we're a saved 
and a sent people. Okay, now here's the problem I want to raise in all that. In saying God's a missionary God, we're a missionary people. God's a sending God and we're a sent people. That we're not just saved, we're also sent. Here's the problem. Is that by and large, the, the church has lost its sentness. Its sentness. That the sentness piece of who we are and who we've been saved to be is a missing mark in, in much of the church. And so it would be totally normal for a guy or a lady to, to walk in and out of a Sunday morning just like this, um, sit in sermons just like this, kind of do the church thing just like this, Bible in hand. They're faithful even to their family. They're faithful in their workplace, but they've just got mission drift happening. They're just missing the fact that God actually has them doing something bigger than raising a family, bigger than, than working a job, that God actually actually has invited them into this mission of rescuing a people of every nation, tongue, and tribe. Now, okay, there's a lot of different ways that you could raise the awareness of that. Like one way you could say uh, kind of to, to bring evidence to this claim that, that we've lost our sentness is to throw out the statistic. I think it's 95% of, of Christians never have the privilege of watching God use their life and their lips for the salvation of another person. 95%. That's nine. So if we just line up, however many is in this room, 95 out of 100, that's not happening. Okay, that, that's a, that's, that should register, that should send a warning flag that sentness is lost. Okay, but, but I want you to see that that's not like a out there problem. It's not like a church down the road problem. It's our problem. It's, it's us in here, our problem. And so let me throw out four questions. I've used these before. I think this would be a good reminder for those who have heard them before. But let me throw out four questions to you just to help lay this idea. And, and for you to be able to ask the question, am I living in this sentness? Am I living as a sent person? I think it'll help give you some handlebars just to kind of think about this over your own life. So four questions and they're layered on top of one another. Okay, so, so here's the first layer. Question number one. Have you ever had the joy of watching God use your life and your lips for the salvation of another person? That ever happened? Now, probably not for most of us. 95% of us, statistics would say that's a no-go for. And so, okay, so let me ask us, peel back that, that question and go one step below it. Here's the next question. It'll be on the screen for you. In the last month, have you had any gospel conversations with those who don't know Jesus? See, the problem is really not that we're not seeing or God use our life and lips for the salvation of people. The problem is Christians like you and I, we're not having gospel conversations with people who don't know Jesus. That, okay, there's a problem underneath this. You see that? The problem is we're not having those conversations. Okay, now let's, let's go one step below that. Question number three. In the last six months, have you had anyone into your home for dinner that doesn't know Jesus? Like, into your home. Okay, so, so here's the problem. Underneath us not having gospel conversations with people who don't know Jesus, the problem is we really don't know people who don't know Jesus. I, and when I say no, I'm talking like across the dinner table, no. Like they observe and they see how you live and how you interact with your husband or your wife and your family. And they, they see your community. They, they see you. They know you. I'm not talking like an acquaintance at work that you know. I'm talking like across the dinner table sort of no. See, see, this is the problem. And just beware of this. If you're a Christian in the room and you've been a Christian for a while, beware of this problem that we have. The longer you are a Christian, the more likely it is that you have walled your life off to everyone who is not a Christian. Like, I like how one pastor said it, that there is this inevitable inertia towards inwardness in the church. 
So, so you look up after years of being a Christian and you realize everybody kind of in my relational circle is a Christian. And can I just say, that's not okay. That's not okay. You need people in your life that are not Christians, right? So it's across the dinner table sort of no. But I, I'm going to say there's even one level below that. And, and let's go here with question number four. Who are you consistently, constantly praying for that doesn't know Jesus? So I think it actually goes down to to this level as well, that the problem isn't even that we're not knowing people, that the reason that we don't know people is it's not on our radar. Like, think about the last two or three months and what you've been praying for. And ask yourself the question, how much of that has centered on God saving people? How much of it is centered on that? Like God using your life and your lips for the salvation of a neighbor, coworker, friend, like, like God doing that. And listen, okay, now this isn't to minimize a thousand other good things that you probably need to be praying for and should be praying for. Okay, so it's not to minimize that. It's just to, to magnify and maximize this question. Is that, is that, are we praying like this? And if our answer is no to that, if you just look over the last two months and you realize that your prayer life is not dominated by a, a want and a pleading for grace from God for the salvation of people around you. If it's not, what, what is that? I want you to ask this question. What does that say about your heart toward God, toward mission to the world? What, what does that neglect of that say about, about where you are? Because I think it says a lot, right? I think, I think it's got some, some sharp things to say about where your heart would be in relationship to all of that. Okay, so, so do you see, and listen, this isn't like, these questions aren't just for a special few of us in the room. If you're a Christian in the room, like you have been saved by grace, by God. If, if that's you, these are your questions. This is a call on your life to be living in such a way that would demonstrate the gospel, that your lips are proclaiming and declaring the gospel, that this is happening with you. Like you're, like this is, these, these things are evident in you and that you get to sit back and you get to the privilege of watching God use your life and lips for the salvation of other people. You get to watch him save people and then you get to stand beside them and walk beside them as they grow into maturity. Like that is a call on your life, not just a special few. Okay, now, now here's my angst for, for this morning and, and what I hope God will use this text to be beneficial for us for is that I, I am praying and I am pleading that God would make us healthy and God-honoring in this area. I, if a church is answering no to those four questions, like if we're answering no to those, that is not good. And it's not like, a, oh man, well, it's, it's just not, you know, we'll get better. That's like a sin that would be offensive to God when we're not living in this call on our life, in this command, to be a sent people, to be a missionary people. And so my hope is that, is that God might use this to restore what would be God honoring here, to really bring to life what would be God honoring here, to grow us in this area. Listen, when mission leaves a church, a church is in serious, serious trouble. When these four questions are answered no, a church is in serious, serious trouble. Listen to one guy as he comments using kind of this idea of the imagery of fire as mission as to what happens in a church when mission leaves. He says it this way. By way of illustration, I regard the image of a fire burning to be a helpful one. Fire ignites other material. And a fire that doesn't spread eventually goes out. Okay, do you see that? When, it, when it's not spreading out, when it's not moving out, it eventually goes out. Likewise, a congregation without mission 
without gospel conversation, without praying and pleading for the salvation of other people, without, okay, without that, a congregation without that can be compared to an isolated fire that is destined to go out. Maybe you could think of it this way. When a church is not moving out, it is moving down. Like when a church is not have mission, like this, this moving out that's happening, then it's on its way to becoming a museum. You know what a museum is? It's a place where people go to come and celebrate all that happened in the past, not what's happening now. Because see, when mission leaves, a museum enters. And so man, I, I'm hoping and I'm praying that, that God might use these words, this passage to spark something in us to just recalibrate our lives around this idea of God is a missionary God and we as a church are not just a saved people, but a sent people. So with that said, let, let's get to the text. First Peter chapter three, um, starting in 17. Peter says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay, now in regards to mission, I think there's, there's two ways you can go about trying to address the issue. Um, one way is you can say, um, I'm going to really focus in on behavior. So we're going to throw these questions up and we're just going to, I mean, zero in on, are these four questions happening in your life? So there's one way that would focus on behavior. There's another way that would focus on the heart, on, on belief, on what you're thinking about God and Jesus and the gospel. Okay, so there's another way to look at it there as a foundational root level issue. And, and then Peter kind of goes this third way, and I love it. He says, I'm going to address the heart first, and then I'm actually going to address your behavior. So he's going to give us a comprehensive view here. He's going to look at the heart and say, we've got to deal with that first. And then when we get that settled, it's going to lead to some, some right behavior, to some right things out beside it. So with that said, we're going we're to deal with the heart first and uh, look at verse 15. It cuts right to the core of what Peter's saying here. Verse 15, first phrase. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. You see it? This is the command. The command is honor Christ as holy. Honor him, Christ the Lord. Like, consider him, think of him, honor him as holy. Okay, so the question is, what does that mean? So I want to clarify, try to clarify what this command means. That same word honor in 315 is the same word in Matthew 6 that Jesus uses when he's trying to teach his disciples how to pray. And he says, our father, which are in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So honoring, hallowing means the same thing. So it's this idea of setting apart. It's this idea of concentrating or consecrating as treating as, as something that would be different. It's, it's that idea of setting apart. So it's looking at Jesus and it's saying, Okay, Christ the Lord is honoring him, hallowing him. It's looking at Jesus and it's saying he is not common. Like he is not commonplace. He is altogether different. 
He is altogether on a different level. So he's got no peers. He's got no comparisons. He's got no rivals. When we think about the beauty of Jesus, the hope in Jesus, when we think about the wisdom of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, the purity of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus, that he is in a class by himself. And this is what it means to honor Jesus as Lord. It is to look at Jesus and there be something well up in us that realizes that he is actually Lord over the universe. That he actually has the whole world in his hands. Colossians 1, that he is upholding all things. So, so it's, it's to look at Jesus and something to well up in us that's celebrating the fact that, that Jesus is actually Lord over the nations. He's sovereign over the nations. So there isn't a regime or a nation on the planet that actually controls the universe. So, so it would be to look at, look at Jesus and to know that, that he is sovereign over nature. That there's not one natural disaster. There's not one tornado. There's not one hurricane that is outside of the providential control of God. It would be to look at God and know he is sovereign over human beings. He's sovereign over husbands, over wives, over kids, over bosses. Sovereign over human beings. He's sovereign over everything. It's this view of Jesus. Honoring or hallowing Jesus means that, that Jesus looms large in our hearts. It means that he has the dominant place inside of us. It means that Jesus is so big that it casts a shadow over everything else that we do. It casts a shadow over the things we think, the things we feel, Everything that we do is lived in light of Jesus. So, so everything, how we act, the words we say, everything is under the shadow of Jesus. Everything is done in light of that Jesus. It means that he is supremely treasured. He is supremely prized. When we think of the most precious commodity on, on the face of the planet, we are thinking Jesus. That, that he is of utmost value to us. Okay, this is what it means to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Okay, now I want to illustrate that command for you. So if you think of Matthew chapter 13, do you, do you remember the parable of the man who is in a field and he finds a treasure? And it says that that treasure is so valuable to him that he goes and sells all that he owns. And then in his joy, it's not a begrudging thing. It's that treasure is so incredible, so prized by him, so valuable to him that in his joy, he sells everything he owns and he goes and buys the field so he can have the treasure. See, what, what Peter is saying here is it's that sort of a view of Jesus. That I'll sell everything to get the treasure sort of a view. It's looking at Jesus as the most prized commodity that you could have. It's actually believing that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's that view of Jesus. That he is that sought after. That loved. That desired. That we'd say, yeah, I'll sell everything to, to get him. And listen, the point isn't go sell everything you have so you can have Jesus. The point is everything that you own should stand like down here in relationship to Jesus. That's the point. And this is what it means to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Okay, now let's stop here and just let me remind you that that's a command that Peter is giving. This is God issuing a command through Peter that this is the way you are to see Jesus. So it's not like I had a bad day and I don't see Jesus like this. It's sin to see Jesus as common. It's sin to view him with just kind of a casual lens. So, so let me ask you the question. Is, is this the way you see and this is the way you think about Jesus? Does Jesus actually loom this large in your heart? That he casts a shadow over everything that you do. Everything. I'm talking the, the things you say, the, the way that you eat, the way you respond in the home. 
over everything you do, he casts a shadow. Okay, and let me point out one more thing Peter says about this command. He says um, that it's in the heart. So this command has a direct kind of link to the heart. So he doesn't just say, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He says, in your hearts, regard or honor, hallow Christ the Lord as holy. So it's a heart issue. So so he's prying down to the central part of who you are. The the heart in the Bible is, if you think of it as like the control center of who you are, that's the heart. So the heart is where what you think or the mind is, that the heart would be um, the emotions, how you feel about life. That the heart is the will, what you actually do. That's the heart. The mind, the will, the emotions, all those things, that's the control center, that's the heart. He's saying in your heart, regard Jesus Look at Jesus as holy. Like in your heart, set Jesus apart. Not commonplace, not casual, but but he is magnificent. He looms large over every other thing in your life. See see Jesus like that in your heart. Now, Now here's the good news about bringing the heart into this. When Jesus takes that sort of a place in your heart, you can actually see some things that would give evidence of that. So I think it helps us in trying to evaluate, like are we living in this command? Like, to evaluate, like, is this happening? Are we in our hearts honoring Christ as holy? Are, are we doing that? Okay, so, so let me give you two things um, that when, when you honor the Lord in your heart, that it's going to affect in you, that it's going to do to you. Okay, so let me give you two things. Number one, f- first thing it's going to do is this command is going to affect your life. Now look at 3.15 with me. First Peter 3, verse 15. And watch what Peter does here. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's foundational. This is the command. Like this is the thing that's got to happen for everything else to happen. So honor the Christ the Lord as holy. Okay, then he goes on to say this. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Okay, so I, I love this passage because here's what Peter is assuming. That when you honor the Lord as holy, when you do that, it's instantly going to create a life that creates questions. Like when you honor the Lord as holy, when, when you start to prize Jesus like this, when you start to see Jesus like this, when Jesus looms this large over your life, it's going to produce a counterintuitive way of living. A distinctly Christian way of living. A way of living that only the gospel could explain. He's assuming that this is what's going to happen. Like when you get the heart right, Jesus looming large in it, it's going to produce this sort of a life. Okay, now let me just bring in the context of 1 Peter to kind of help us see this. And this is the part that if you've been here over the last two months, then you could probably preach this little section of the sermon. So go back and want you to see the context of where we are in 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. So in 2.12, he's saying, in light of what God has done for you, verse 9, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession, in light of what God has done for you, 1 Peter 3.15, in light of Jesus looming large in your heart, in light of all that, then verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, so so Peter is saying that, that there should be something so distinctly Christian about your life that when people watch your life, your good deeds, the way that you would live, 
it gives them a beautiful picture of who God is and what the gospel does. This is what he's saying, that they should see your good deeds and they should glorify God. And so he's saying that essentially your life should be lived in such a way that it adorns the gospel, that it makes the gospel look beautiful. Your life should be lived in such a way that it authenticates the gospel. It actually makes the gospel believable. And so one of the ways that we've said it around here for the last couple of months is that your life should be lived in such a way that it demands a gospel explanation for it. That it's so counterintuitive to the way that a person would just naturally kind of impulsively think to live that it should produce the question of how can, why are you doing that? What is wrong with you? It should produce this way of living that only the gospel could explain it. That only the fact that Jesus actually like left heaven, came to earth, lived perfectly in your place, died an undeserved death in your place and rose from the dead. Only that could actually explain how you live. This is what Peter's saying. Okay, now, and this is, he gives a sampling of of what this could look like. And so if you just start moving forward in chapter two and verse 13, he gives a sampling of how you would relate to authority, specifically the government. For the Lord's sake, you should submit to every human institution. You get down to verse 18, he gives another example of what it might look like. Um, In in the context of um, how a person would graciously and patiently endure unjust suffering. You ever had any of that? And, And the way that we would, patiently, graciously endure that, God is saying that that, that there's a lot at stake there. Like there's a gospel demonstration that's at stake there. If you get to verse or chapter three, um, Peter introduces the idea of marriage. So he's saying that there is something bigger about your marriage than just your marriage. That in your marriage, the gospel is at stake. It's a gospel demonstration. So, so men, the way that you would lay your life down and love and be a good head in your home, taking responsibility for your home, the way you would do that actually says something about the gospel. It's meant to, to, to adorn, to make the gospel believable. That Jesus is a good head. He's satisfying. And, and ladies, in the way that you would joyfully follow the one that God's placed in authority over you, it, it says it's more than just about your husband. It says something about Jesus. It's meant to be a gospel demonstration. It is meant to adorn the gospel. It's meant like to be this opportunity that God has given you to, to have this unique privilege of saying, this is how satisfying Jesus is. See, there's something at stake there that's bigger than your marriage. And when you get to, to verse eight in chapter three, he, he puts it in the context of the church, having unity and sympathy and brotherly love and tenderness and humility. There's something at stake with how we interact with one another in this room that, that has the gospel at the center of it. So he's giving all these, these examples of ways that you can live in such a way that demands a gospel explanation. But I want you to see the connection. He's saying that when you prize Jesus, this is what prizing Jesus produces. When Jesus looms large in your heart, this is the sort of life it produces. A countercultural, weird way of living, a different, distinctly Christian way of living that would be, that would be like lived in such a counterintuitive way that would create these questions. That it would produce those sort of questions. I love what um, a guy named Harvey Kahn, he used an, I think, ill interesting like imagery to describe the place your life has in mission 
and how your life is meant to be lived in such a way that adorns or makes the gospel believable. And he used the, uses the imagery of a model home. Have you ever been in a subdivision that is not developed, it's being developed, and they set up a model home at the front of it? And the model home is to, to allow people to walk into it, to kind of get a taste of what life in that neighborhood could be like. Okay, so he uses that imagery, and this is what he says. He says, perhaps the best analogy to describe this is that of a model home. We are God's demonstration community of the rule of Christ in the world. So in other words, we're like this demonstration home showing people what it looks like to live under the reign of grace, like under Jesus. He goes on. On a track of earth, on a track of earth's land purchased, not with human money, but by the blood of Jesus, a Christ, Jesus, the kingdom developer, has begun, begun building new housing. And as a sample of what will one day be, he has already erected a model home of what will eventually fill the whole earth. He now invites the world into that model home to take a look at what will one day be. The church is the occupant. So, so you, if you're a Christian, you're the occupant of that model home, inviting neighbors into that home and into Christ. And evangelism, mission, is when the signs are up saying, come in and look around. Come in and get a sense of what true humanity was intended to be. Do you, do you see the role that your life plays that your life kind of sets up this model home and it's to be lived in such a way that as you invite people in, it's showing people a picture of what is coming. It's showing them a picture of what life is like under the reign of Jesus, of what life will one day be like in heaven. It's showing a picture of that. So, so do you see what your, what your life does? Peter's saying when, when Jesus is prized in your heart, that it produces this sort of a, a way of living that, that kind of functions as this model home showing people what it looks like to live under Jesus. So, so let me just ask the question here before we go further. Is your life doing that? Is your life doing that? And, and I want you to see that if it's not, the issue is not that it's not doing that. The issue is that we're not prizing Jesus. He doesn't loom large enough yet in us. Okay, but he's got something else to say in, in verse 15. That when we honor Christ in our hearts as Lord, that, that command, when we live in that command, it doesn't just affect our life, it also affects our lips. So, so read this again with me one more time. Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and, re and respect. Okay, so I want you to see the tie here, the connection. When you honor Christ the Lord in your heart, it produces a distinctly Christian way of living, a distinctly Christian life, and it produces distinct Christian lips. Do you, do you see this? When, when Jesus is prized in your heart, it produces this gospel displaying lives, and it produces these gospel displaying lips. Gospel de declaring lips. That you're actually talking about Jesus. That gospel conversations are actually normal for you. That when you look back over the last week, the last month, the last year, that you see a litany of gospel conversations with people who don't know Jesus. That, that talking about the gospel, talking about Jesus, is just a normal part of, of how you live, what you think about, how you interact with people. That it's normal for you. 
that it's not abnormal, that you don't have to like, sit down and think about the last time that you've had a gospel conversation. Okay, now, now I want you to see like, clearly the issue here. See, I think when a lot of people talk about um, trying to motivate their people towards mission and gospel conversation, here's what like pastors and church leaders naturally think. Well, what we really need is to get like a class going that would show them how to share their faith, how to talk about the gospel, how to do this thing. So we'll do a 10-week class that'll, that'll show them that. And then we'll get a few new methods and a few new kind of tricks of the trade. So we'll get the Evangel Cube that kind of goes through the whole progression of Jesus coming, dying, rose again. We'll do that so they have a nice little tool in their hand. And then they'll, surely they'll, they'll go out and do the mission thing. They'll, they'll have gospel conversations. Can I just tell you, what you need is not primarily another class and a new tool. That's not primarily what you need. If you are not talking the gospel, what you primarily need is a bigger view of Jesus. What you primarily need is for Jesus to actually be prized in you, to be treasured in you, to be supremely valued in you. That's what you need more than anything else. That's it. See, until Jesus is prized in you, he will never come off of your lips. Until he looms large in your heart, then there's always going to be this, this sort of reluctance to, to share Jesus. Okay, I, I want to read a question, question and an answer that I came across about two years ago that I haven't been able to get away from as it relates to this issue. So I want to read this for you and, uh, and let you kind of chew on this for a second. Um, it, the question is from a guy named J.R. Vassar. Um, a friend, pastor up in New York City. And this was the question he tweeted. He, he asked this question. I've shared this a time or two before, but I hope it's still encouraging for you like it is me. Or actually convicting, maybe not encouraging. Um, why are Christians negligent, hesitant, reluctant, and even resistant to speaking the gospel? Why is that? Okay, so just think about your life. Do, do you see some hesitancy there? Some reluctance there? Like, what, what is the reason for that? Now, Steve Timmis, he's a pastor in England. Here was his response back. He, he tweeted back this answer. Because we are not truly, madly, and deeply besotted with Jesus. Now, Steve Timmis is actually from England, and he has a thick accent. So we're going to let him slide with that word besotted. Um, if, if you're like me, you probably don't use that word in your normal vocabulary. So let me give you a definition of what that means. When he says we're not truly, madly, and deeply besotted with Jesus. Being besotted means to be intoxicated with, captivated by, to be obsessed with something. And do you see what he's saying? That the reason that we're negligent and hesitant and reluctant is because we're not besotted, deeply besotted with Jesus. He doesn't loom large in our heart. He hadn't monopolized our attention and our affections and our hopes. Okay, now think about the implication of this. So if you would look at your life and, and see and, and say that, okay, I, I'm not having gospel conversations. I am reluctant. I am hesitant. I want you just to see the link here clearly. That means Okay, if you buy into what we're saying here, that, that means the problem is Jesus does not loom large enough in you. You're not besotted with him. Like this, this command of 1 Peter is not happening yet. We're not living in this idea of honoring Christ the Lord as holy. See, the issue is Jesus being so prized that he has to be proclaimed. That's the issue. And when we're not proclaiming Jesus, declaring Jesus, it means that he's not prized, that he is shrunk and shriveled in our heart. 
Okay, now this is another, probably the most influential quote I've heard on just mission and gospel. Um, it's come from a guy named John Stott. And listen to what he, what he says here. He says, the greatest single hindrance to evangelism. So, so for mission, getting the gospel on your lips. The greatest single hindrance to, to mission or evangelism today is the secret poverty of our own spiritual experience. Selah. Think about that for a minute, huh? That the biggest problem we have in the room when it comes to mission, when it comes to gospel conversation, is the secret poverty of our own spiritual experience. That that our poverty spiritually is the problem. I think this is what happens for a lot of us in the room, especially those of you who have been Christians for a while. I think it's really easy for you and for me to reduce Jesus down to a few truths. So when we think Jesus, we think Jesus is these things. We have Jesus kind of in this box of truth for us. And you know what we've lost in the, in the middle of that? The fact that he's also a treasure. See, and here, here's the problem. If Jesus is just a truth to you, you will never talk about it. You'll never do it. You, you won't talk about Jesus until he's both truth and treasure. See, I, I think embedded into all this is just this question. Is Jesus a treasure for you? Is, is he the Matthew 13 thing for you? Where you would sell all that you have in your joy so you could purchase this thing, have this thing. Is your view of Jesus that big? See, until he, until he becomes that big, we're not going to have a life that demonstrates the gospel and we're not going to be a people who declare it. Okay, so here's what I'm working hard to do for you is for you to see a clear connection between honoring Christ the Lord in your hearts and then your life, the connection to your life and that, it producing a gospel kind of displaying life and your lips, it producing gospel declaring lips. So here's what I want to finish doing. I want to finish by connecting the dots between how your life and how your lips fit together in mission. How how important both of them are. So I want to do that with two statements. I'm just trying to to bring together how important life and lips are and how these two things work together and how they're both necessary. So here's the first statement. Statement number one. Your life, we're going to focus on life first. Your life is what builds the platform from which your lips proclaim the gospel. Okay, your life is what does that. Your life is what builds the platform from which you get to stand up and with credibility speak gospel. Okay, so think about what you're saying when you're speaking gospel. When you're talking gospel, here's what we're saying. That Christ is huge. That he's satisfying. That that he actually quenches the deepest thirst of our hearts. That every legitimate need that you have can be found in the person and work of Jesus. Okay, that's gospel. Okay, now think about your life. Your life does one of two things to that message. One, it can undergird that message, come around that message, and actually make that message believable. Do you know how hard it is to believe that? That Jesus is actually that satisfying that he can quench every need that you have, every thirst that you... Do you know how hard it is to believe that? And so your life as a Christian actually gets to display that it's true. Okay, so your life can do that. It can come around and help build evidence that it actually is true. It's authentic. It's believable. 
or your life makes an absolute mockery of that message. Do you see that? Those are your two options with your life. Either you're building evidence and you're adorning that message that you're proclaiming, or on the other side, you're ripping down the platform as your life makes a mockery of what you're saying. See, okay, maybe I can say it this way. The most persuasive thing you have, the most persuasive thing you have is a changed life. The the most persuasive argument for the new life that Jesus brings, the gospel brings, is actually a new life that it's brought. Because that's your most persuasive argument. So your most persuasive argument is not five proofs for the existence of God. It's not your four-page essay on why the Bible is God's word. Okay, all of them are fine. I'm not out to bash any of them. But it's not your most persuasive argument. Your most persuasive argument is your life that demonstrates and adorns that this thing is legit. So I think that there's a strain of Christianity that says this. What we really need to be persuasive in the culture is actually to become cool. So, so we've got to kind of get in. Like we've got to be the in people, the in crowd. We've, we've got to get cool to actually be per, per, persuasive. So we're going to set our lights up here. We're going to get a few new lasers. We're going to get a fog machine and we're going to be cool in culture. Okay, can I just say that I don't think that's what, I don't think that's what people need. I don't think that's what your neighborhood needs, your workplace needs. I don't think our city needs another cool, trendy, hip people. I think what all of those places need are a people who are credible. See, our problem is not coolness, it's credibility. See, what your neighborhood needs is a person, a a man, a woman, who, who lives in such a way that the gospel is actually believable. That it actually adorns the gospel. That, that, that's what your neighborhood needs. A people who are living a distinctly Christian life. Listen to uh, Graham Tomlin. He's commenting on some stuff from Blaise Pascal. But listen to what he says, kind of, says in this kind of idea of what your life does in building a platform for you. He says it this way. If you don't make people want to believe the gospel is true, it doesn't matter what sort of arguments you lay before them. Presenting someone with a list of proofs for Christianity or evidence for faith is probably a waste of time. If someone doesn't, listen to this, if someone doesn't want to believe, no amount of proof can ever convince them. The crucial factor in persuading someone to believe them is not to present evidence, but first to awaken a desire for God in them. In other words, when commending Christianity to people, make it attractive. Make, I love this statement, make good men wish it were true and then show them that it is. Such arguments as there are for Christianity can convince those who hope it's true, but will never convince those who don't hope it's true. Do you see what your life does? Your life is the most persuasive thing to make men and women actually want to believe the gospel is true. Your life is the most persuasive thing you have. It's the most attractive thing you have. It's like pearls in the gospel. It's what your life is. So so if we want to be persuasive, here's how it works. Live a life that is distinctly Christian. And the way that you think, the way that you feel, the way that you respond, that, that's not fleshly. It's not the impulsive kind of fleshly thing, but it, but it displays this gospel heart. So your life builds the platform from which your lips declare the gospel. And he, here's the balancing piece of that or the, or the other statement. 
Number two, is your lips are to actually proclaim the gospel from the platform that your life has built. That, that your lips are actually to, to proclaim it. So that there's got to be a point where you actually talk gospel. See, Peter's assumption is your life will create a question and then you will speak with your lips the gospel. So, so when someone says, why are you that generous? That we don't just say, well, because my mom and dad kind of trained me to be generous. But, but we would say, and we would know that it's because God in Jesus has been generous to us, that Jesus was rich, 2 Corinthians 8. He became poor so that we, you and I who are destitute, could actually become rich in him. That's why I'm generous. That's why we're generous. If a person says, why are you that kind? When, when you've got this distinctly Christian way of being kind to people, when everyone else would be an absolute jerk to them. See, why is it that you're kind? It's not just because your kind of personality lends in that direction. No, it's because God in Jesus has been kind to you. So kind to you that he sent his son to die for you. But why is it that you would forgive in that sort of an extraordinary counterintuitive way? What, the, the reason is because that God in Jesus has forgiven us of the most egregious offense. That's why we forgive. See, so I, I want you to see that words actually have to be spoken that connect life and gospel together. I, 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 there's a popular phrase, and I, I'm actually going to make a caveat here. I actually think the person who said it was saying it with the right intentions, but when I hear it quoted, it's quoted in the absolute wrong intentions. You, you might have heard it. It goes like this. Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Can I just tell you the way most people use that phrase? It's absolutely ridiculous. See, there's not an if necessary clause in there. It is necessary to use words. I like how one pastor said it. It would be akin to saying, um, hey, give me your phone number. If necessary, use digits. A phone number has digits in it. See, the gospel contains a message that has to be described with words. Like people actually have to know that Jesus came, lived a perfect life in their place, died a death in their place. They actually have to know that he was risen from the dead, that they have to respond in faith. And when they do, God will save them. A person has to know that. And it takes words to convey that. And so there's got to be a moment where, where we're not just building a relationship for 20 years and we all die. But there's got to be a moment where we build relationships and we're leveraging our life to speak gospel, to communicate the gospel, that Jesus is naturally on our lips in normal conversation. And I want to just set some of you at ease. I think for some of us, especially the worriers, here's what happens. Well, I see this word prepare in there. And so how do I prepare? Does that mean I get like my, my three by five note card and put my top five reasons on there? Like, how do I prepare? And can I just say that that's not how you should prepare? You know how you should prepare? It's actually by setting your hope in Jesus. It's actually by like today pleading with enough, like for God to give enough grace that today you will live with your hope fully, firmly fixed on Jesus. And then you wake up tomorrow, ask for more grace. God, will you help me today? My hope fully, firmly fixed on Jesus. And see, when your hope is firmly fixed on Jesus, do you know what's very easy to talk about when it's asked about? The reason for your hope. See, just don't get your five, three by five note card out. Just set your hope on Jesus. That's how you prepare. And let me speak to two different kind of crowds in here, and then, then we'll close up. See, there's some of us in the room that um, in verse 15, the last phrase, see the last phrase, do not be afraid of them. Do, do not fear them. 
Look, there's some of us in the room that we are terrified to have gospel conversations because we are so terrified of people. What are they going to think about us? What are they going to do to us? What are they going to say? What, what, how is that thing going to go down? We're so terrified of people that we build relationships all of our life and we never, we, we never speak gospel. We, we never offer the hope that, that we have, right? And so, so our problem is we've got a huge view of people. And can I just say this is the problem? We've got a very small view of God. See, the solution to like, don't fear them. The solution to that fear of man is verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's how you overcome fear of man. So if you're fearful of people, if in that moment there's like this paralysis that comes up over you, you know what you need more than anything else is to prize Jesus, to have a huge view of Jesus. Now, the other half of us in the room, you're the person that um, you don't really struggle with that piece of it. You struggle with just being an absolute jerk while you share Jesus. And so you need to see the last part of verse 15. Do it with gentleness and respect. See, your problem is not that you have a small view of Jesus. It's that you have a really, really small view of people that doesn't treat them with dignity and respect and gentleness and kindness. See, see, your problem is that your view of people is too small. That these are people Jesus died for. And just like God in Jesus was patient and kind and gentle with you, that you are to be gentle and kind and patient with them. That means you don't have to like slam through a closed door. You don't have to do that. You can be gentle and appropriate along the way in your gospel conversations. So he's saying do that with gentleness and respect. And and here's my hope for us, and and we're done. My hope for us over the next year is we might have a story like this happen, that that we might actually have the story, and I'll just use a man as the illustration, that, that we might have a story of a man who for the first time gets a view of Jesus that is all encompassing. Like Jesus really, really looms large in his heart. And it produces in this man a couple of things. It produces one, this life that is a beautiful gospel demonstration. And, and so he has kindness that he didn't have before. He has a gentleness that he doesn't, didn't have before. He has a patience that he didn't have before. He has a joy that he didn't have before. He, all these fruits of the Spirit are now coming out in his life. And he's gotten to know a neighbor over the last several months. And the neighbor is, is contrasting that old them that, that old person and this new person. And, and at some point, the neighbor actually asked the question, why is it that you're now being so kind to your wife when you used to not be? Why is it that you would actually be gentle with her like that now? And, and that our man who is, who is prizing Jesus in his heart, it naturally starts to flow off of his lips why he is that kind as he highlights the work of Jesus, that, that God in Jesus was kind to him. And over the course of a few months, that their neighbor, his neighbor, comes to faith in Jesus. They trust and treasure Jesus. They hold up their life and say, Jesus, will you save me? And Jesus does that for them. And, and then in a few months, we get to roll in a baptistry, and our man and his neighbor are up here, and we get to watch our man baptize his neighbor. If we, as we highlight the work that God did through our man and the work that God did for this person as he saved them. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing to see? And wouldn't that be a beautiful thing if that was you this year? If God might use you for that, me for that, us for those sort of stories? Man, I pray that it'll happen, huh? Let's pray together. I want to let you just sit under that for a second and let the, let the Spirit just massage what needs to, to land on you in and allow Him to remove and wipe away everything that was unhelpful or 
not instructive for you? And, and here is my hope for us in the room is that Jesus would really be prized. That that Matthew 13 picture, a man in a field finding a treasure, selling all that he has in his joy so he can buy the field, that that would be characteristic of our place here. It'd be characteristic of your life. When you become a Christian, that is what to some degree happens in that moment. That, that a Christian is a person who is trusted in Jesus and is treasuring Jesus. A, a Christian is a person who realizes this truth that, that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live perfectly in our place and on the cross to all of our sin was stacked onto Jesus and all of his perfection was, was transferred over and stacked onto us. See, it's a person who realizes that truth and, and that that truth has actually landed deep enough in our heart for us to look at Jesus and prize and treasure him. That's what a Christian is. And it just worries me because I think we've got a whole like little culture of church world that recognizes a few truths about Jesus without treasuring him. Like a, a Christian is a person who is treasuring Jesus. That's what they are. That's, that's what we do. And so the, the, the hope would be that, that he is so prized, he is so treasured that it produces in us a distinctly Christian way of living. Where Jesus is actually satisfying the deepest aches of our soul. So we stop looking for a husband, for a wife to do that. We stop looking for a relationship to do that. We stop looking for a job to do that. We stop looking toward our kids to do that. And our hope is firmly fixed on Jesus to satisfy everything that we need. It produces that, that distinct way of living. And it produces these, these lips that are distinctly Christian, that, that speaks this beautiful gospel from them, this great hope of all that God has done for us in Jesus. And so God, I want to pray this over our church family, that God, by your grace, you might grow this in us. God, that your spirit would, God, it would, spotlight and shine on Jesus in such compelling and convincing ways that it would win hearts in here. That it would move us to prize you and treasure you and value you and to see you as supreme over everything. So God, God will you help us in that? We know that takes so much grace from you. And so God, I pray that you, you would do that. And God, that the effects of, of Jesus being treasured in our heart would be evident here, that the transformed life, the 
gospel-speaking lips. And so, God, I pray for stories this year of the play out of that happening, of men and women coming to faith, like you, you saving as you've worked through the life and lips of, of this people here. And so, God, by your grace, will you, will you do that? It's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.